Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our June 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Psychiatry is traditionally defined as a branch of medicine focused on mental disorders. This article presents evidence for why and how this definition should be expanded to include the concept of positive psychiatry. The authors trace the history of positive psychiatry, including its complementary relationship to positive psychology, in work supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health and the author's own institutions. A unique aspect of positive psychiatry is the focus on those with or at high risk for mental or physical disorders. In contrast to traditional psychiatry, positive psychiatry gives priority to not only reducing problems, but to helping people develop and build on their strengths, such as resilience and optimism. A wealth of evidence indicates that positive psychosocial characteristics, such as resilience and optimism, can improve both subjective outcomes like happiness or well-being and objective outcomes such as health and longevity. The authors provide an overview of positive psychosocial factors and outcomes and their underlying neurobiology. They also provide existing data suggesting that these positive factors and outcomes can be promoted through active psychosocial or behavioral treatments and, in the near future, through emerging biological treatments as well. Pragmatic suggestions are made for integrating positive psychiatry into clinical practice. The authors conclude that positive psychiatry is poised to make substantive contributions to the larger field of positive mental health and to impact the overall health care of the population. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this next article, which received funding from Shire, the authors report a four-year follow-up study of children ages 6 through 12 years who were diagnosed with ADHD and some who were not. In a population sample, 87% of families seen at the first assessment were followed up four years later, yielding a total sample of 875 families. Among the children who had ADHD at the initial assessment, 66% continued to have the disorder or impairing symptoms at follow-up. Persistence of ADHD was predicted by having higher levels of inattentive symptoms, oppositional defiant disorder, and a family history of ADHD. The authors note that the ability to predict the prognosis of ADHD patients is an important clinical tool as it helps clinicians focus scarce resources on efforts to monitor patients and prevent secondary disability. Among the children who were not diagnosed with ADHD at the initial assessment, 3% were diagnosed with the disorder at follow-up. 
These new onsets of the disorder were predicted by having had higher levels of ADHD below the diagnostic threshold, higher symptoms of oppositional defiant disorder, and difficulties in school, or a family history of ADHD. The authors conclude that children with sub-threshold ADHD symptoms may require close monitoring for worsening of the condition. They may also require treatment, depending on a clinical evaluation of the severity and pervasiveness of the impairing symptoms. Bipolar disorder is associated with impairments in emotion processing that are present both during mood episodes and periods of remission. To date, the bulk of research has investigated facial emotion recognition abilities. However, the ability to accurately perceive, interpret, and process emotion from prosodic intonation and to understand the affect inherent in the meaning of sentences are important aspects of human social communication. Thus, this study focused on the perception of prosodic and semantic affect in bipolar disorder. Subjects were recruited from two medical universities in Austria for this study. Fifty-eight remitted patients with bipolar one disorder were compared to 45 controls by using subtests 9 and 10 of the comprehensive affective testing system. Patients and controls did not differ regarding the recognition of vocal emotion while ignoring the affective meaning of test trials, but patients significantly more often misinterpreted sad prosody as happy prosody. In addition, patients were impaired in recognizing the affective meaning of test trials while ignoring the vocal emotion. Performance on subtest 9, in which subjects were instructed to ignore the affective meaning in affect-laden sentences, and focus on the prosody was negatively correlated with depression scores. However, a positive association was found between performance on both tests and patients' functioning. Patients indicated a significantly lower quality of life than controls, but this finding was not mediated by differences in prosodic or semantic affect perception between the two groups. Even during periods of remission, Patients with bipolar disorder may be impaired in semantic but not prosodic affect perception. Notably, they may frequently misinterpret sad expression of emotions as happy. The findings of this study underscore the relevance of semantic deficits in the psychosocial context. Psychosocial intervention is needed to improve affect recognition and social cognition and functioning. Delusional jealousy is a psychotic syndrome characterized by a false belief that one's spouse or partner is unfaithful. This syndrome has been described in relation to organic psychosis, but little is known about the role of delusional jealousy in dementia. In this study, supported by the Japanese government, Researchers investigated the clinical features of delusional jealousy in patients with dementia. 
General characteristics such as age, sex, mini mental state examination score, and type of dementia were compared between elderly patients with delusional jealousy and those without. In addition, each patient with delusional jealousy and their primary caregivers were interviewed about the clinical features of the syndrome. Of the 208 consecutive outpatients with dementia, 18 had delusional jealousy. Interestingly, as many as 26% of patients who had dementia with Lewy bodies exhibited delusional jealousy. The prevalence of delusional jealousy in this diagnostic category was significantly higher than in patients with Alzheimer's disease. There were no significant differences between patients with and without delusional jealousy in regard to gender, age, and dementia severity. However, delusional jealousy was preceded by the onset of serious physical illness in nearly half of the patients. In this series, seven of nine men and four of nine women committed actual physical assault on their spouse. Delusional jealousy resolved within 12 months after treatment in 15 of 18 patients. In dementia, delusional jealousy may develop more easily in patients who have dementia with Lewy bodies and those with coexisting serious physical disorders. Although delusional jealousy is a considerable problem in dementia, the prognosis of the disorder in demented patients appears to be relatively benign. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Weight gain during the psychopharmacologic treatment of depression has a considerable impact on the clinical management of the disorder. It plays an important role with respect to compliance, treatment continuation, and elevated risk for metabolic and vascular disorders. Until now, no profound clinical risk factors for treatment-associated weight gain have been identified. In two large observational antidepressant treatment studies, consisting of a combined 900 depressed inpatients, Researchers identified clinical risk factors associated with weight gain in the acute treatment phase. Lower body mass index, or BMI, weight increasing side effects of medication, higher severity of depression, and psychotic symptoms could be detected as clinical risk factors for weight gain during the initial treatment phase in both studies. Based on these results, researchers composed an applicable risk score for weight gain. This composite risk score includes the following clinical variables. BMI equal to or lower than 25. A 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score higher than 20. Presence of psychotic symptoms. And administration of medication with potential weight-gaining side effects. This composite risk score was highly discriminative for weight gain during psychopharmacologic treatment in both studies. Taken together, these results demonstrate that depressed patients with low to normal BMI, severe depression, or psychotic symptoms should be considered at higher risk for weight gain during acute antidepressant treatment. 
the clinical risk score proposed by the authors might be considered as additional information for treatment decisions, individualized disease management, and risk prevention for metabolic disorders in the treatment of depression. Many experts involved in the treatment of schizophrenia believe that long-acting injectable treatments should be more widely prescribed than they currently are for patients in the United States, but these psychiatrists feel frustrated by a perceived difficulty in persuading patients to accept this treatment option. To better understand the doctor-patient discussion, researchers observed 10 community mental health centers that regularly managed patients with schizophrenia and that had the clinical infrastructure to refer for or administer long-acting injectable treatments. Funding support for this study was provided by Janssen. A trained ethnographer spent one day on site and recorded real medical visits between the psychiatrist and patients with schizophrenia. The ethnographer left the room during the medical visit as soon as the recording device was prepared. Separate post-session interviews were conducted with the patient and with the psychiatrist. Standard ethnographic assessments for medical discourse were applied. Analysis revealed that only one-third of patients verbally accepted the recommendation of a long-acting injectable treatment. However, in follow-up interviews, all but one of the 28 patients who seemed to decline the treatment told the interviewer that they would have been willing to try an injectable medication. Discourse analysis of the doctor-patient discussion showed that the long-acting injectable treatment recommendation was often made in an unenthusiastic manner, emphasizing the modality and injection as opposed to potential benefits of the treatment. While the reason for the half-hearted recommendations is not fully understood, researchers do not feel it was a lack of understanding of the possible benefits of the treatments. These ethnographic findings suggest that the primary source of the apparent low acceptance of long-acting injectable treatments is clinician ambivalence regarding the value of the therapy rather than patient refusal. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The nocebo effect occurs when a harmless substance creates harmful effects in the person who takes it. The effect may be associated with poor treatment outcomes, perceived adverse events, and treatment discontinuation. The presence of nocebo responders in clinical trials may contribute to outcome variants in both placebo and active treatment arms for important primary and secondary endpoints. Nocebo effects are thought to be driven by expectancy and conditioning. A study by Dodd et al. analyzed pooled clinical trial data in the placebo arm of controlled trials of antidepressants in order to investigate variables associated with adverse outcomes. Specifically, they examined treatment emergent adverse events, discontinuation in placebo-treated patients, and worsening in Hamilton Depression scale score. 
Treatment-emergent adverse events were very common among placebo-treated subjects. Unexpectedly, there was no evidence to associate these events with adverse clinical outcomes, nor were the conditioning or expectancy hypotheses supported by these data. Results indicate that the nocebo effect explained 11% of worsening on the Hamilton Depression Scale, nearly 64% of treatment-emergent adverse events, and 4.7% of discontinuation in this large placebo-treated sample. The nocebo effect is common in the placebo arm of controlled trials in major depressive disorder. Expectancy and conditioning have a role, but more research is needed to understand what lies behind the etiology of this effect. In a pilot randomized controlled trial sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers tested whether exposure therapy facilitated by the medication decyclosamine was an effective treatment to reduce anxiety and increase weight in patients diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Exposure therapy is an effective behavioral intervention that teaches individuals that what they fear is not as frightening as previously believed. Preliminary results have shown exposure therapy to be effective for increasing food intake in anorexia nervosa. Additionally, decycloserine is a medication that has been shown to facilitate the benefits of exposure therapy for anxiety disorders by enhancing emotional learning during the exposures. In the current study, 36 participants diagnosed with DSM-4 anorexia nervosa were recruited from a partial hospitalization eating disorder clinic. Participants were randomly assigned to receive exposure therapy plus decycloserine or exposure therapy plus placebo. Participants completed psychoeducation and four sessions of exposure therapy with medication given prior to the first three exposure sessions. Participants also completed a one-month follow-up. Those participants taking decycloserine showed a significantly greater increase in body mass index than those in the placebo group, having gained three pounds compared to one-half pound in the placebo group. Both groups experienced significantly decreased anxiety over the course of therapy. This study preliminarily demonstrates that decycloserine helps exposure therapy better treat patients suffering from anorexia nervosa, leading to increased weight gain. Additionally, this study found that exposure therapy is a feasible treatment to reduce anxiety experienced during mealtime by individuals with anorexia. Many patients with major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder experience impairments in daily life despite treatment. The authors of this article investigated whether functional impairment differs between patients who currently experience a mood episode and those who have been in syndromal remission for six months, a year, or more than a year. In addition, they sought to determine if functional recovery differs between patients with single episode and recurrent mood disorders. Data were derived from nearly 2,000 participants 
of a large, still ongoing epidemiologic study in the Netherlands between 2006 and 2009. Participants were diagnosed with single-episode major depressive disorder, recurrent major depressive disorder, or bipolar disorder, which is by definition recurrent. For comparison, data for healthy controls were also included. Bipolar patients suffered more functional impairment than patients with recurrent or single-episode depressive disorder. The degree of impairment decreased with longer time since last mood episode in all patients. Functional recovery was faster in patients with single-episode depression than in those with recurrent depression and bipolar disorder. However, when compared to healthy controls, even a year after the last episode, functioning remained impaired in all patient groups. Severity of persistent subsyndromal depressive symptoms accounted for most of this effect. The authors conclude that functional recovery may take up to one year after syndromal remission in patients with recurrent depressive and bipolar disorders, mainly due to residual depressive symptoms. These findings emphasize the need for prolonged continuation treatment. As primary care has become a cornerstone for mental health care, the need for physicians to be well-versed in psychiatric conditions has become essential. Misdiagnosis can occur across all mental health conditions, but the multifarious nature of obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, may make this condition an elevated risk for misidentification. The authors of this study assessed the ability of primary care physicians to identify OCD cases presented in a clinical vignette format. 208 physicians participated in the study. Each individual was randomly assigned a vignette that describes a common type of OCD such as aggression, contamination, fear of saying things, and homosexuality. Overall, half the participants misdiagnosed the OCD vignette. The rates of misdiagnosis varied greatly depending on the content of the obsession. The highest misdiagnosis rates were for homosexuality and aggression. Physicians also provided treatment recommendations for the individual described in the vignette. The American Psychiatric Association recommends cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, as the first approaches to treating OCD. But physicians who misidentified the OCD vignette were less likely to recommend CBT or SSRIs as the first treatment approach compared to the physicians who correctly identified the vignette. The authors conclude that their findings highlight the need for greater training regarding OCD symptomatology and treatments. Insomnia is one of the most common and clinically important depressive symptoms that fails to respond to treatment. Hypnotics can be prescribed, but they are associated with adverse events, abuse, and dependence. Cognitive behavioral therapy is also effective but it is time-intensive and requires active participation of the patients. Because of the limitations of drug and psychological treatments, acupuncture has been used for the treatment of insomnia. 
The authors of this study tested whether real acupuncture is superior to minimal acupuncture and placebo acupuncture. Minimal acupuncture is a process in which patients are needled superficially at places that should have no therapeutic effects. Placebo acupuncture employs retractable needles to produce a pricking sensation, but no puncturing of the skin takes place. Sixty patients were treated with real acupuncture, sixty with minimal acupuncture, and thirty with placebo acupuncture three times a week for three weeks. The study received funding from the Hong Kong government. The authors found that at one week and five weeks after treatment, no differences were observed between the three groups. Although some improvements occurred in all three groups, it was most likely due to the nonspecific effects of acupuncture, such as patients' expectation of improvement. The authors conclude that future studies should test whether individualized treatment, tailored according to each patient's condition, is required for the effectiveness of acupuncture in patients with residual insomnia associated with major depressive disorder. Military service members and veterans who have experienced trauma are at risk for developing difficulties in personal relationships, including aggression. The goal of the current study was to evaluate the effectiveness of the Strength at Home Friends and Families Intervention, a dyadic group intervention designed to prevent relational aggression and its negative consequences. The group was comprised of a community-based sample of veterans and significant others who reported relational difficulties. The study received funding support from the Blue Shield of California Foundation. Strength at Home incorporates psychoeducation about the impact of traumatic stress on relationships, skill building to enhance communication and prevent conflict, and peer supports to encourage connection and create broader networks of support. The 10-week intervention is based on a social information processing model. This model holds that trauma contributes to deficits in the interpretation and processing of social information, and these deficits contribute to relational conflict. Study results demonstrated reductions in psychological aggression at follow-up, as well as evidence of improved overall relationship functioning and reduced post-traumatic stress disorder and depressive symptoms. Results provide support for the effectiveness of strength-at-home intervention in reducing relational aggression between military members and their significant others and enhancing both relationship quality and mental health. As a class, atypical antipsychotics demonstrate relatively uniform efficacy in mania. However, the various agents appear to differ in their efficacy in depression. To date, data on acenapine's effects on depression are lacking. This report, which received funding support from Lundbeck, highlights a post hoc analysis of patients meeting criteria for major depressive disorder while in a manic mixed state. Decrease in score on the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale, or MADRAS, was the primary outcome measure. The results demonstrate the clinical utility of acenapine in depressive symptoms, a pattern distinct from that of placebo in this analysis. 
Decreases in MADRAS scores from baseline were significantly greater at treatment days 7 and 21 and at endpoint for patients receiving acenapine than for patients receiving placebo. Patients receiving acenapine also showed greater decreases in MADRAS scores at treatment days 7 than patients receiving olanzapine. However, caution is necessary in interpreting data from post hoc analyses not designed for that outcome. Definitive studies are necessary to confirm these findings. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Despite the number of available antidepressants approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for depression, many patients fail to respond to initial treatment or experience residual symptoms that hinder their functioning. For these patients, medications with different mechanisms of action may improve symptoms. In this Academic Highlights, funded by Otsuka, Follow a discussion by Drs. Thais and Schwartz as they review two patient cases and the mechanisms of action of the different antidepressant classes from the older TCAs and MAOIs to the newer SSRIs and dual-acting agents. In this month's ASCP Corner offering, Ira Glick and James Ellison discuss the importance of long-term management for patients and caregivers in the context of the considerable time constraints often present in a pharmacotherapy visit. They discuss the use of a comprehensive patient history questionnaire that patients and caregivers can complete before the first visit. This form provides clinicians with a richer background for understanding the patient's concerns. They also discuss formation of a patient-caregiver-prescriber alliance, as well as the points to remember in conducting follow-up visits. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. There is a widespread misconception that for a generic drug to be deemed bioequivalent to a branded drug, it must contain 80% to 125% of the active ingredient present in the branded version. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the FDA's actual requirement for bioequivalence of generics and how it is calculated. He explains that the FDA requirement for bioequivalence between generic and patented drugs is actually quite stringent and not lax, as many mistakenly believe. The full text of this column is freely available online. Visit us at psychiatrist.com to read it and participate in the discussion. In this issue, we highlight three educational activities. The first examines how the standard hypotheses about the causes of schizophrenia fail to account for all types of symptoms. In this CME activity, funded by an educational grant from Genentech, you will learn about the neuroscience behind schizophrenia, why certain medications are effective for some types of symptoms but not others, and what future medications may help to manage patients with difficult-to-treat symptoms. The second activity asks the question, do you regularly assess cognition in your patients with depression? 
In this CME offering, funded by an educational grant from Decatur U.S. Region in Lundbeck, you will discover how to use validated scales like the Mini Mental State Examination and the Perceived Deficits Questionnaire to assess cognition in major depressive disorder in clinical trials and in everyday practice. The third activity reviews the challenges of accurately diagnosing bipolar depression. Patients with bipolar depression are too often misdiagnosed as having unipolar depression. In this CME offering, funded by Synovian and Supernus, you will find out how you can make a correct diagnosis as Dr. Nasralla shares clues that may reveal bipolarity in your patients who initially present with depression. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.